Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I've got Matt Roche, the Director of Business Development at the Pittsburgh Knights. And sales in esports, especially around teams, is something I've been talking about so much recently on the podcast. And it's another topic that we touched on today. So if that's close to your heart, I think you'll really enjoy it. We also talk a bit about Tier 2 esports and things that are quote-unquote not sexy to maybe the media or to VCs, but maybe more profitable now or in the long term. And also, why would a sports team like the Pittsburgh Steelers get into esports with the Pittsburgh Knights? There's so many different reasons, but we unpack this one from a man who is behind the curtain. Enjoy. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. I realised that I booked this in on a public holiday, but esports never sleeps, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it, Chris. No worries. You know, the best best thing about a public holiday is there's absolutely no traffic on the road, so it didn't take me much time to drive into the studio, which is always helpful. Well, uh, on my side, unfortunately, the Pittsburgh is the the city of bridges, so we have to go across a ah. hundred different rivers to get in. And one of the key ones was closed today, so I had to take a roundabout way. So I we we offset each other in that sense. So um, ah, the but, yin and the yang. Right. I feel like uh, <laughs> I feel like it's it's kind of a bit like um, I've I've been drawing more and more comparisons to Jedi and Star Wars recently. Like um, right. I've I've been closely looking at you know people's perception of linkedin on different social platforms especially twitter and i feel like it's the balance of there always needs to be a sith and there always needs to be a jedi in the right. same way that there's always people that equally love linkedin and people that equally despise linkedin at the same time so maybe our, maybe our travel is exactly the same <laughs> i i you know probably i i love i think linkedin is is the number one platform right now um for esports in the sense that, you know, having conversations like this and, and just creating new synergies with people that maybe you wouldn't meet on, on Twitter or Instagram or only opportunities at, at trade mm. shows or, or large events. So huge fan of the platform. And I've been the driver in, in our office over here with the Steelers on getting, if everyone, you know, if they don't have a LinkedIn account, they need to get one and they need to start posting regularly just to, just to keep the conversation going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, once once again, for, for everyone listening, this is how you and I met through LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. another LinkedIn win, as I call them sometimes. Right. I, but I refuse, <laughs> I refuse to turn that into a hashtag, LinkedIn win. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe eventually. Maybe eventually. I've really gone. I think you'll know I've really gone downhill when that happens. So if, right. if I ever do that for the <laughs> listeners, ask me if I'm okay, because the answer is probably no. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll, I'll make a note and keep an eye out. Yeah, fantastic. Set a, set a note with Siri. So... Let's just kick it off. We've had a lot of discussion before the podcast. We had to cut short because we were getting into probably what we should have recorded. So let's um, get straight into it and let us know a little bit about yourself and your history because we've got a lot to chat about today. Yeah, so I've been uh, in the space probably just over a year and a half now. Uh, from Pittsburgh originally 
in a previous life, I focused primarily in event management. So um, producing uh, gaming and technology-focused events. Uh, we did events in, in nine different states for just over 100,000 people over the course of four or five years that the company existed. And in summer of 2017, sold off the company. Um, we were heavily competing on the markets of, of another major brand, and, and they acquired us and all of our assets. And at the time, I was living in Houston, moved back to Pittsburgh, uh, where I'm from, and ended up joining up with the Knights through a, a, a series of different conversations and a lot of luck was involved, but, um, you know, humble for the opportunity. And it's great to be, um, on the esports side of things. Cause once again, I, I was primarily focusing on influencers and events prior, um, but always focusing around business development, sponsorships, partnerships, and, and just strategic expansion for, any company that I've been with. So, um, mm. it's, it's been an interesting roller coaster to say the least, but I don't think I would, you know, looking back, I, I think that all of the different experiences has kind of led to this, to this opportunity. And, um, we've, we've had a lot of really good momentum over here at the Knights and have just been able to secure a ton of different partnerships and opportunities. Yeah. Fantastic. So, I mean, it's an obvious place to start this uh, podcast is that, bit of a discussion about the crossovers with traditional sport and esports and and the founding of the team and, and the process so was this an existing asset that the Steelers uh, purchased and, and acquired or is this a you know a JV or what's the structure and history behind it yeah so the the Knights were an already existing team um, we we started out focusing primarily on PUBG PUBG was the first game that we ever competed professionally in um, and continue to expand the company. Currently, we operate in seven different titles. But back in November of 2018, so literally just about a year ago, um, we moved into the Steelers offices here in Pittsburgh. So we're right next to Heinz Field, the NFL stadium. Um, and the Steelers, you know, it, it, it took a while for conversations. Um, but ultimately, they understood the, the industry and the outlook and the benefits and, I think what's important is they understood the pros and the cons. So we were able to come to them and say, you know, here's the best case solution, but here's also the worst case solution. And we think that we're going to, you know, be somewhere in the middle, ideally. So um, they uh, invested into the company. The, the Steelers didn't acquire the Knights, but they did invest into the company um, almost as a, a lead investor or raiser, I guess you could say. Um, mm -hmm. And that's when we, we moved into their offices and, really were able to coordinate with all of the different departments within this traditional sports team. Because I, I think if you think about it, there if you come into a job as a marketer or as a salesman or an event manager, you usually only coordinate with those individuals in that specific department. Um, mm -hmm. You may, you know, if you're on the event side, you may talk to marketing, you may talk to sales. We had the opportunity coming into this to coordinate with every department of the Steelers organization. So from merchandise to sales and marketing to events, to stadium operations, really understanding how each individual department operates within the, the larger conglomerate of the Steelers. And that's really been able that that's we've been fortunate enough to be able to kind of retain and act as a sponge for all that information and try to take best practices over to esports as we see fit. So it's been a great relationship to date. Um, and we've been lucky enough to, to work with them on bringing in more investors and more partners like Wiz Khalifa and a couple other ones um, to, to really create this entertainment vehicle that, that is esports in the Pittsburgh Knights. 
Wiz Khalifa, fantastic. So what are what are some of the major advantages as as you see? Or I'd love to learn a bit behind the curtain, like why are the Steelers getting involved in esports? Is it the allure of the the younger audience? Is it potential other revenue lines? And you know, I understand there's probably some things you can and can't talk about, but you know, it's a very common question that most people ask me is you know, why would a sports team get into esports? And my answer always is, well, there could be five or six different reasons. So I'd, I'd love to learn from you as to the motivations. Well, I, I, I think ultimately it's it's the unknown, um, which is attractive for a lot of different groups, but also scary. Um, I think that we put together a really attractive uh, opportunity and package in the sense that we did our due diligence on the space. Um, James O'Connor, who's the, the CEO of the Knights, he, you know, former pro player turned, uh, team owner and, and coach. He jumped from team liquid to renegades to a couple other groups. And, you know, mm-hmm. so he has extensive tenure in the space. Um, and the group of individuals that we've been able to bring together in terms of backend staff, the success that we saw around partners at that time when we were initially talking with the Steelers, it was a perfect storm. And plus, um, you know, Pittsburgh has this weird <clears throat> affinity to sports teams. Uh, we match all of our colors. We're black and gold the same way that the Steelers is or the Penguins, which is the NFL team or the Pirates MLB. And, um, it, it, it made sense to continue the synergy. Um, but I, I think that from the Steelers perspective, we're able to reach, you know, obviously a younger demographic comparative to what the NFL can. And they're constantly seeing, um, strides with new investments and new expansions um, into this industry, and it, it was it was the perfect storm for us to be able to finally move move forward and execute something. So, like you said, variable of different reasons, but um, I think mm-hmm. that we were able to put together a really attractive opportunity. Um, and you know, with us being right in their backyard, essentially here in Pittsburgh, it made sense where we can closely coordinate with each other and really create something great that hasn't been created yet in esports. And recently with the podcast, we've had American audience numbers and downloads have um, started to overtake Australia, which is good to see some of our international Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. But but for those people, even like myself from Australia, have, you know, small knowledge as far as the NFL space goes, can you shed a little bit of light into the Steelers and maybe is there some things that the Steelers see in themselves that they saw in you and, you know, why did that make a, a solid partnership besides, you know, obviously the numbers making sense is a very important part of it, but I'd love to dig deeper and learn a little bit more. Well, you know, the NFL is celebrating its its 100th year this season, um, and the Steelers have been around since 1933, so you know, long-lasting sports franchise. I think they're either the fourth or fifth oldest um, NFL team at the moment, and um, they've they've created this this mystique around the brand, and specifically. The, the fan base and the fandom that the Steelers have been able to create. So to, to give you a little bit of perspective, um, I, some, one of our team members went out to San Francisco a couple of years ago and left the airport. And the first thing that they saw was, a was a Steelers bar, um, in San Francisco on the other side of the country. And where we were able with the Steelers, they've been able to create this, um, massive fan base just as an NFL property. I think they're the largest, um, most popular NFL team in Mexico, which is also why we brought on Mexico, uh, and, and the esports MX, 
uh, LATAM fund that came on board and also invested into the company. And um, they also have a huge affinity in terms of the, um, you know, women globally in the sense that they are the largest sports team um, in terms of their their numbers for for women and, and the fan base for that in the world, um, even including things outside of NFL properties, the Steelers are the largest oh. uh, team with a, a female fan base. So it 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 you know they've been able to create just a massive amount of uh, followership and fan base, not only locally but nationally and internationally. Um, and you know from our perspective, I think that. We are the main goal of the company was to take Pittsburgh global with esports. We, we were one of the first teams that put the city in the name because we wanted to represent what we're creating here. We wanted to create a Manchester United approach, global fan base, but, but well integrated local footprint. And that's the, the path that the Steelers have taken as well. So I think there was definitely a ton of affinities and crossover and our thinking behind that and kind of the direction we wanted to take the brand. So um, once again, you know, super humbled for the opportunity that the Steelers came on board and we have a lot of really cool stuff in the works for, for 2020, just collaborating between the two brands. Mm. And a discussion that happens um, a bit here in in Australia in recent years that I'd love to touch on with you as well is um, love and love to get some more information about your view on city, state or country, based or named esports teams there was uh gfinity from the uk expanded to australia in 2018 i believe they started mm-hmm. here and they've recently shut up shop but they um brought on a lot of discussion based around that is you know should we have in australia you know a melbourne team a sydney team etc and the same with esports with esports being so global so i'd love to learn from you about that does that bre- does that build some brand affinity for the local people by using that localized name do you think maybe it's a bit of a hindrance with esports being such a global sport I'd love to get some of your insights so i i think that you know depending on who you ask there's pros and cons on both sides um we specifically as a brand um, started with this mission to really create an opportunity, uh, once again, global fan base, integrated footprint um, for our local region. And, you know, once again, pros and cons of both sides. I think that um, as, as more and more teams develop, there is going to be a more regionalized approach with it. And especially with what Activision Blizzard and, and, their whole group with Overwatch and Call of Duty are doing in that sense. I think that we're going to see a lot more teams starting to have to take that approach. So we um, hedged our bets on that early on, and it it worked out very, very well for us. I think that there's some markets I'm I'm not super familiar with, with um, Australia, unfortunately, with, you know, how your fan base structures with sports teams. But um, mm. I think in some markets, it, it, it would be a difficult play um, here in the States and specifically in our area. We have benefited greatly from it. And, you know, we've been able to strike partnerships and be recognized as an official sports team of the city of Pittsburgh. And March 13th is Pittsburgh Knights Esports Day here in Pittsburgh, just to, to give you some perspective. So we've been able to create a lot of cool things um, around implementing that local approach, but mm. still keeping in mind when we go out and talk to brands and sponsors and different entities that we are still hitting national and global numbers. We can uh, directly target to a Pittsburgh audience if that's what 
you know, a local sponsor wanted to come on and do something with us, but we're still able to hit that national and global approach, just depending on um, what fan base of, of, of our demographic we want to target. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion, and I don't, I don't have the answer in quotation marks personally myself, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think we're definitely on the same page with a lot of that, and that you can build that, you know, local pride and and local brand affinity with um you know with with having those names but then maybe it does limit yourself if you want to pick up a Korean League of Legends team because right. maybe they don't yeah. you know or you know you see this with what was it the London Spitfire in the Overwatch World League all Korean right. players mm-hmm. for example yeah. so you know and, and we had that with Gfinity as well like the you know there was a Melbourne team um Melbourne Avant I think and they're they're all from Sydney um but in traditional sports that definitely does roll through like Using a personal example and try to over-explain it a little bit for the Australian listeners, but it might help the American ones, is that we've got the Australian Football League here in Australia, which is kind of our own version of the NFL. You know, it's only really in Australia, but it's mm-hmm. crazy It's crazy popular. You know, sell out 100,000-seat <laughs> right. stadiums for the semifinals and grand finals and things like that here, which is crazy considering we have like a 23 million population. Right, yeah. And, you know, my girlfriend's family and massive Sydney Swans fans – and have been for like four generations since the Sydney Swans were actually the North Melbourne Swans and they moved because they're from Melbourne themselves. So it's like intergenerational support, but right. once again, it's based on the, it's, it's based on where you live, you know, most of the time. So yeah, I'm wondering, you know, and it's, and it's always that question about, you know, does that get built into esports? Are we, are we quote unquote past that or does the benefit of, um, you know, the localized fan base outweigh any other, you know, perceived issues or Twitter trolls that you might come across. Right. And, and, you know, that's the question that I think, um, everyone on, on the team side, even, even the tournament and league side asks every day. So over, uh, during, um, every Steelers home game that happens, um, this season and, and, you know, future seasons, including in that, um, we have the Pittsburgh Knights gaming zone in Heinz Field that activates for every single Steelers home game. So when 70,000 screaming Steelers, NFL, Pittsburgh fans go into that stadium, they have an opportunity to come over to the night zone, engage in, in some free play, win some prizes, t-shirts, uh, you know, buttons, stickers, those types of things, but, um, be able to experience gaming and, and esports and competitive playing on, you know, while it's a small level, they get to experience that firsthand. And a lot of the times I'm standing there looking out over the, the 60, 70,000 people that are in that stadium and asking, I wonder if this will ever be, um, for esports, you know, consistently every single week um, over the course of a season, 60, 70,000 people coming to one location. Uh, I talked to a, a family even this past weekend um, that was at the game, and they were saying that uh, they had traveled from, um, I, I think it was Los Angeles or something like that, just to come to the Steelers game that weekend. So that's the type of of fandom and fan base that hopefully we're able to create sooner or later in esports. Um, like you said, it, it may be already past that in the sense that, you know, the, the, the stadiums are, are going to be obsolete and it's going to be everyone communicating through, um, online communities and, and discord groups and, and, you know, virtual experiences. I know BlizzCon is doing their virtual ticket this year, uh, where you can, 
get into that community aspect and don't necessarily have to go to a location in order to engage with it. So it's it's an interesting angle to to look at and think about. And I think that's one of which we we saw very attractive from the Steeler side because we're able to look into that and, and say, you know, here's potentially how we can build something similar, not only here in Pittsburgh, but um, also other markets and other regions where um, hopefully other teams are looking at us and saying, how the hell are the Knights doing that? Um, and, you know, following suit. So we want to be drivers in the industry in that sense. And um, I, I think that we're, we're at an advantage, just, you know, the, the, even the Steelers season tickets, for example, are, I think it's like a 25 or 30 year waiting list. So when you're a fan, you're a fan for life. And, um, trying to bring that over to esports is definitely a big challenge, but I, I think it's, it's something that, that we're up to, you know, up to the plate to take on. Mm. And, and another very common question I'm asked as well on a slightly different tangent, and I'd love to get your insight and experience on is, um, advantages and disadvantages of creating your own team as a brand or a sponsor versus investing or acquiring another in regards to, you know, just exactly the situation that you guys have found yourself in. Yeah. So I, I think that, um, with, with esports right now being, um, I'm going to use the word unregulated and, and sometimes mm-hmm. that people view that as a negative word, but it's, it's not necessarily meant to be that, um, anyone mm-hmm. at any time can create a team. Um, you know, especially in some of the grassroots leagues, um, in, in, in games and events, uh, the, the Nintendo properties like Super Smash Bros, for an example, there's a huge presence here in Pittsburgh around Smash. And we constantly see, especially on the collegiate side, those are the types of games that those colleges and, and collegiate clubs and groups are engaging with and interacting um in, in terms of you know creating your team or, or or you know joining up with an existing one i think that's really depends on you know personal preference and what the direction is that that individual or that company or that group of investors is looking to go down if you even look at what the u.s army right now is doing um in esports we you know the army is a, a partner of ours we work with them on a bunch of different stuff but they are taking the approach from a from a sponsor perspective of the army is, has created their own esports team and they want to go to market and compete with the Pittsburgh Knights or Team Liquid or TSM or Space Station or any of these other groups and kind of want to prove the model that hey they are um, as talented as, as any other esports property is. And, and they don't need to go out and sponsor someone. They can go in and create their own team, which is, you know, all U.S. Army, um, signed military personnel. So we've had a great relationship with them. And, and I think that's a really good use case on an example, like you said, of, of a brand slash company. In this case, it's, it's the Army, which is a, a massive conglomerate, but, they're going to market and creating their their own opportunities and creating their own teams, um, which is an mm. interesting angle to take. So that's that's one example that that I've seen really recently um, that they've they've rapidly evolved. But um, you know, I, I, like I said, I think that there's pros and cons on both sides, and um, you know, regardless of, of um, an, an individual, whether that's a player or a, a, a manager or executive or back end staff deciding whether to to join up with an existing team or um 
you know, I guess start your own. It, it really depends on, you know, how much motivation you want to put behind it. Um, it was, it was a big learning curve for us when starting the nights and there was definitely a ton of mistakes that were made, but you know, it's, it's about learning from that and evolving and, um, you know, taking best practices from, from good groups and good individuals and good investors. Um, so that's, mm. that's the outlook that we've seen on it is, uh, you know, there, there are other organizations that we've seen pop up in, in our local region. And, um, you know, we, we want to support them and grow the overall industry. And it's, you know, a, a good bit of competition is always beneficial for everyone involved. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how things shake out especially over the next couple of years where I think that um, the undefined industry of esports is going to get more and more defined in the sense that um, the leagues are going to start buttoning up, um, you know, their quote unquote exclusive groups that they're going to allow in very similar to what Activision is doing. And um, I think that's going to set the standard for a lot of different, for a lot of different groups. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. I think the next two years are going to be a pivotal point, especially here in the States on, um, which teams are going to shake out um, and, and continue to to branch into that upper echelon, and which ones are are going to um, you know potentially be merged with other groups and be acquired or or what have you? Mm. And, I li- and I like the army example that you used before. It's something that I've talked to the Australian Defence Force about. Um, you know, obviously, it, sometimes the Defence Force has issue with sponsoring other things due to, you know, the past histories or trying to align brand values, et cetera. And I've been trying to push the Defence Force to think about internal marketing. You know, you can control something where you've got all the employees under you if you create your own team, for example. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And I, yeah. I think that's what the same approach is, is what the Army has taken here in the States. Um, and they've been doing extremely well with that, with that, um, you know, marketing technique. Um, and, you know, they're recognized a lot of times as a, um, you know, just an esports team, the same way that the Knights are. So they're competing in tournaments and they're going to market and promoting the overall U.S. Army brand and creating kind of a coolness factor with, um, with the demographics and, you know, pushing their agenda out there. So, um, it's, it's been interesting to watch them go through the process because we've been working with them now for, uh, probably six or eight months and, and, you know, trying to find ways to continue to engage them into, into cool opportunities. Mm. So another topic that you're, um, very experienced in, and, and I'd love to touch on, and we talked about this off recording and it's been a topic that I've talked about a lot with, um, friends and associate behind closed doors, and now I want to bring it into the public light of the podcast. Now I've had enough time to think about it, which is the tier two esports landscape, and specifically around games for you, like the Paladins Pro League and and Smite, and maybe even mm-hmm. PUBG. So what I've seen in the market is that a lot of VCs like to invest in what's sexy and what they see as large and scalable. So in traditional tech, that might be a new social media platform, a ride sharing service, an automated car service, some kind of online digital platform that they see as sexy, scalable, next billion dollar company, etc. In esports, what we often see that is is the tier ones that are in the news quite a lot. So the very interesting League of Legends where you're getting, you know, up to four million concurrent Twitch viewership. Right. You've got million dollar majors, games like Dota Two, where you've got a twenty three and a half ish million dollar tournament and such. And these are the more sexy, exciting, big number ones. However, what comes with those is the big costs. 
you know, I'm told that there's an esports team in Australia which has a single team that costs them $900,000 in salary and operation right. costs yeah. from end to end for one year. So 900K of AUD of OPEX, which is about 650K US, give or take. Um, mm-hmm. And similar, you know, overseas, hearing that a lot of the times it's, you know, one point, it can be up to 1.2 mil to operate a Counter-Strike team in one year with salaries of, you know, 60 to 300K USD plus potential bonuses and flights accommodation, team house, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, what I've seen in the back end, you know, being friends and associates with, with, with Kanga, who's also in the Paladins Pro League and a team that's been bootstrapped up until this point, is that while the Tier 2 esports aren't as quote-unquote sexy for things like VCs, they do seem to be a bit more sustainable and the support from the developers seems to be fantastic, whereas you're getting fed down these kind of franchise benefits where the the organization is assisting you in selling stickers like they used to do a lot more in Counter-Strike and, and mm-hmm. in Dota. Um, you know, they're assisting you with the marketing, the growth of your league. They seem to be quite in touch and in contact with all the teams that are involved as well. So while their total viewership might be as as um, big as the Tier 1 sports or as sexy, it's something that seems to be a bit more sustainable. And it's something that I'm, as I'm getting a little bit older, learning about in personal investing too, that, you know, a lot of the times the businesses that aren't, exciting are the ones that make a lot of money owning a bunch of laundromats or owning a car wrecking right. yard or mm-hmm. investing in slow growth stocks um, and bonds and things like that too. So, you know, while once again, there are upsides and downsides, the downsides being a potentially not as big a payoff if you're looking at a large exit or a billion dollar company, um, but the upsides in being much more sustainable in the current early stage Comparatively speaking, as far as where esports is compared to traditional sports, so I've gone a bit of a rant, but I think it's time you stepped in. Give us some of your thoughts. Yeah, I I, I think that you know you're heading down the right path in the sense that we view teams and in this this you know conglomerate of esports a little bit differently than than a lot of other organizations do, and that's specifically around the the fact you know like you said if if we just look at high res games. Smite Paladins, we are able to to create a community around those games that is more intimate, that the fan base regularly wants to engage with the the teams and the content that we output and the conversation that's happening through our social media accounts and, and through the forums and through the Reddit and, and all that different stuff. Um, and we're able to do that and, and gather a sustainable community at a much lower cost comparative to the CSGOs of the world. Um, like you said, there, there's some insane numbers right now in terms of player salaries and the expense on, on some of these singular assets. Uh, and I think that eventually the market's going to correct itself in terms of player salaries. But what a lot of people also don't realize is that the, the, the prize pool for a lot of these games, the lion's share goes to the players. The team takes a, you know, negotiable smaller percentage out of that 100% of prize pool. But even if you're just looking at, at CSGO, and I, I love the game. James, our, our CEO, used to be a pro player. We, we, we love the game. Um, but looking at it from a financial perspective, um, a lot of the times it doesn't make sense because as I mentioned, you know, b- before we kick this off, that, that leaves me in a sticky situation where if we're spending a million dollars on, on salaries and backend expenses for a CSGO team and we're not generating, 
uh, a substantial amount of profit from the game itself, from the game developer, from the tournament organizers, then I have to go to a brand and potentially overvalue myself, ask for a lot of money, and that's going to put the brand in a sticky situation where you know, they're going to be unsure on the returns. And if we don't deliver, then, you know, that may be the one and only venture that they, that they enter into esports with. I would much rather, uh, focus on some more conservative plays, some long-term, uh, investments where we want to build a relationship with the game developer. We want to build a relationship with the fan base that's around that. We want to assist both the fan base and the game developer in growing that individual viewership, um, and creating an opportunity where we can be the number one team in that game um, and can bring sponsors and partners on board and show mm-hmm. them the consistent results at potentially a lower price point. So it's just a different frame of mind. Um, we didn't, we didn't raise money off of VCs. We, we raised money off of uh, sports teams and groups that, that like to see return on their investment. So we're, we're taking a little bit of a different approach in that sense, but it's, it's worked very, very well for us in, I think that we're seeing a lot of other teams follow suit um, in in that similar model. Mm, mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely some good points brought up, and I think this is you know for those people listening, it's it's going to be a topic we talk about a lot more on the podcast going into the future because I think it it needs a lot needs a lot more discussion from both sides, and it's something that I'm going to start asking some more of these tier one esports teams on as well. You know, why are you involved? And it happened here in Australia. I was I was you know. In a meeting with a roundtable, which had a lot of the largest sponsors in Australia and largest team owners, not just the CEOs, but the major investors of them as well. And mm-hmm. you know, one of them brought up that topic, and it was specifically CSGO in Australia, because from around 2017, we saw salaries explode in Australia for CSGO from $0 to $600 per week for right. um, the pro teams. Um, yeah. And I believe there was one team that was getting paid, I think, $300 a fortnight possibly so it kind of went from zero to 300 a fortnight to 600 a week to you know up to 900 and you know this right. investor was saying why can, can we all just agree to take a step back and and impose our own salary cap for a second because we're not recouping the money that is required and you know a lot of the time too you know you might be spending a million dollars a year on a team uh, but are you able to recoup that directly and of, of sponsorship and a question i wanted to to pose to you was one that Nick Bobber, CEO of Icon, and who who's a team ownership of or the company that owns the Chiefs Esports Club here in Australia. One mm-hmm. of his new board members gave him the mission that I thought was very interesting to me to set a profit and loss sheet for every single team. Is that something that you've ever considered before, and is that something you keep in mind when looking to expand into new games? We we do that every day. Um, every single team expansion that that we look to go into we we want to completely understand what the expenses are for that and you know for that singular asset for that investment and what the potential return is that we're able to see so how many more jerseys can we sell how many more t-shirts can we sell how much merchandise can we drive from that viewership uh what type of events if any we can produce around that in our local community through you know even online tournaments and online events what type type of sponsors can we bring to the table for that specific asset? Um, and yep. So we, we build that for every single team. Um, a- any expansion that we look to get into, we, we spend the time to fully understand both sides of the coin just because 
that's what what our investors expect from us. Um, and if we go into a situation where we get asked the question on how much we're making or losing off of a team and, and we don't know what the upside potential is, then that's obviously a, a concern from from the investor's perspective. So we try to mitigate as much risk as, as possible, but it, it it's also not for our benefit. It's also for you know brands and sponsors that come on board for that specific asset. And I'm able to comfortably say to them, you know, here's the investment dollar that we're looking for. Here's the type of return that we think that we can drive from that. Here's the viewership and, and the exposure that we can generate from, from this specific title or game. And if we decide that it doesn't make sense for us to invest into, why would we go to any of our investors or our partners or sponsors and ask them to, to pay for it on behalf of us? So mm-hmm. we take the initial risk and then we try to go out and sell the opportunity and, and kind of present it to our brands and sponsors and also ask their opinion. Hey, what do you think about this game that we're thinking about getting into? Um, mm. We do the same thing with our investment group and our board of directors. So it's all a conversation. Um, if, if it's one person making that decision and they're not looking at the, the, the opportunity for revenue or the opportunity for profit, which is ultimately what everyone's looking for. And they're only focusing on the expenses. Then, you know that that's 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 a a much bigger issue um, than than just you know in, investing into new games. So once again, uh, I, I think that um, more teams than you would expect, at least that I hope, do that same process. But that's been something that we've been doing since day one, and I think that's why we've been able to get so many good groups of investors and partners and sponsors to come on board because we try to be as transparent as we can on. Um, our thinking behind it because we we have to be the experts and we have to go and tell people hey this is what we think is a worthy investment and this is what we think we'll see the return and um anyways you get the idea but it's it's been something that we've been doing um since the beginning so and i you know for me one thing that that came apparent while you were discussing that with with my own startup in comparisons is that i don't see it much different than a new employee you need no. to essentially mm-hmm. do a profit and loss internally for a new employee and say, look, even if they're a back-end designer, is the amount that you're spending on their wages, are they delivering enough of that advantage to the business? And if exactly. you're able to sell a new contract off the back of them, you know, are you generating a profit? And the really the easiest one to explain is if you're a PR company and let's say that you go to Razor and you pitch them to sign them on and you say, hey, Razor, pay me $2,000 a month and uh, we'll handle your PR for you. It's not going to work because you're going to have to hire someone for four thousand dollars a month plus right. superannuation plus tax plus look after them, buy them a laptop, etc. So you're actually losing money over that period of time. So is it the same when you're picking up a team? Can you say unequivocally, "Hey, okay, I'm going to pick up a team in Fortnite, and I know that they're going to be able to say, a instantly, I'm going to be able to sell a hundred thousand dollars sponsorship off the back of them." B, I'm going to be able to recoup a bunch of money through, you know, taking a small, say, 15% of their prize winnings. And C, I know that they're going to sell me a ton of jerseys. So the mm-hmm. amount that I'm spending on these guys, we're actually going to come away with a profit. And that's that's something that I don't see a lot of teams doing. And that's something that I fell into the mistake with myself in the past with a startup in in thinking more so about myself in saying that, if I was a solo person, sure, maybe that two, three grand a month is great to start off with Razor because you can put a couple of days a week into them of your own time. You can do your own overtime. You know, you're not paying rent on a building because you're working out of your own home. 
and maybe it's a great case study for you. But when you start to scale up, that doesn't work. It's, you start to lose money by selling these right. kind of sponsorships. And exactly. either you need to double down or you need to fire your client. And, you know, there's a role learning experiences for me personally that I've never been through personally. But I think that, you know, some of these esports teams need to start thinking a bit more that way. And that's not saying that many don't, but many that I know certainly aren't thinking that way. Well, in, in, you know, to your point, we have 15 full-time backend staff that support the teams. We have mm-hmm. independent contractors, photographers, videographers that travel around with the teams to different events. And, you know, there's an expense associated there too. And then plus we have 25 plus professional players that we have to pay the salaries for and, and, you know, have to manage. And, you know, the, so there's, there's, a lot of, I kind of consider it almost like an iceberg. You know, you see the the tip, but below <laughs> that, there's a whole lot that a lot of people don't realize goes into executing these types of properties and executing new partnerships and investment and sponsorships and events. And, um, you know, so we view the teams as, um, you know, essentially we're picking stocks at the end of the day. I don't, I don't want to dumb it down that simply, but um, we're looking mm-hmm. and saying, what is going to have the return? Um, how are we going to be able to make money off of this and what's ultimately going to drive the brand vision? Because, you know, we can get into, to CSGO tomorrow if we wanted to, but, and that's going to sell a hell of a lot of jerseys. But if we have to create a larger deficit on, um, the, the expenses side, then, like you said, a lot of the times, sometimes it, it, it doesn't match up. So it's all just about, understanding and staying current and speaking with the game developer and speaking with other teams in that specific game and trying to to gather as much information as humanly possible about the 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 profit loss opportunity for for any given title so you know that's even why we're not we've decided like many other teams to not continue our investment into Fortnite um just because they are you know love epic games but they're taking an approach that's more focused towards uh, the solo player, the singular user, and it, it doesn't benefit substantially on the team side with the expectation that a lot of those players are having in terms of salary. So we decided mm-hmm. to to uh, remove our investment from Fortnite and venture into other titles where we can have a more serious conversation about the stability of the game, the stability of the players, uh, making sure that we're executing long-term investments and, you know, not just picking things up and then dropping them a couple months later because we realize, oh, crap, there's no money here. So it's it's always a long-term play. That's always the vision and, and the outlook that we have to have on things. Mm-hmm. Mm, definitely some definitely some good discussion. I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we met each other through LinkedIn to have it. <laughs> One, <laughs> definitely. And, and look, I've, I've referenced back to a lot of podcasts today, and I'm about to do it again. Um, a podcast that I did recently with Jeff Pabst, the CEO of, of sorry, CRO, Chief Revenue Officer of FaZe Clan, mentioned a little bit of hesitation or a little bit of worry about um, some of these non-endemic traditional tier one type brands re-signing for a second period within esports. How do you, as as a team, ensure that your sponsor is happy um, you know, how confident are you in, in the re-signing of your sponsorships to put yourself on a bit of the chopping block? And mm-hmm. do you see this in, in the wider market? Are you also a little bit concerned some of these tier one sponsors won't re-sign due to low delivery or any other reasons? Well, I, I, I think, you know, even outside of esports, any brand or sponsor or client that doesn't re-sign, um, 
was was ultimately because they probably didn't have clear expectations of what the partnership was going to look like and what success looked like at the end of it. So if I bring on you as a, a brand or a client and you have an expectation that I'm going to drive you X amount of dollars and I end up doing half of that because that may be my expectation, then, you know, obviously we're not going to align on that. So what we try to do with, with any company that we're talking to, um, you know, first off, we don't have set packages, uh, that, you know, Coca-Cola can't come to us and say, Hey, I want your most expensive package. We have to have a conversation about it. And we have to, I have to fully understand what that brand or sponsor is looking to get out of the space because sometimes they, um, I think this was something that you said in, in a podcast a while ago. Sometimes they say esports, but what they actually mean is gamers or Every just day. that specific <laughs> demographic. And yes. it, it's a completely different, um, advertising and marketing technique to target towards esports versus um overall gamers. So, you know, with with one of our partnerships what we do is we kind of do it on a two-pronged approach where yes, they they invest heavily into the nights on the competitive side and we produce a significant amount of content around them, but we also manage uh their Twitch spend just as an example. So, they come to us and they say, "Hey, you know, we we don't know how to advertise on Twitch and we don't know what will work and um, can you work with us and work with Twitch to be able to do that? And so it's all about setting clear expectations. Uh, you know, before we enter into any agreements, before everyone signs on the dotted line and it's a happy day and we pop the champagne, we say, what does a successful partnership look like to you at the tail end? Whether it's a one year partnership or a three year partnership, what is a successful um, result look like for you? And, and additionally, a lot of, a lot of other teams, um, don't root their, uh, they don't track anything with data. Um, so, you know, they slap a logo here, here, and there and hope that it delivers the results, but nor them or the brand know if they're actually achieving the results. So we use a data analytic, a data analytics company called Zoom. Um, mm. and they allow us to track everything on social media. They allow us to track the conversation. They do AI and logo detection across our jerseys for any broadcast that our teams are, are on. And what I do, depending on, on the sponsor, provide monthly or quarterly reports to them saying, here's what we achieved this past month or this past quarter. Here's the, the success and the results that we've seen. These 10 deliverables that we pitched to you, they're doing amazing. This one is underperforming. Let's make an adjustment there and let's ensure that, um, that, that we implement a, a corrective solution so that a year from now, we're not coming back to the table and saying, Hey, I wish we would have done this, this and this. We were able to make those changes throughout the partnership. So. I completely agree. Um, I think that there is going to be a lot of brands that, uh, come to the table and say, Hey, you know, we didn't see a return from our investment. Um, but teams like ourselves and, and others, you know, including phase into that, I think are taking a more intimate approach and understanding what the brand uh, is looking to get, understanding what a successful campaign looks like and showing key metrics throughout the partnership so that we can say, yes, we are still on track for success or no, we are not on track. And if that's the case, then what corrective action can we put into place to make sure that we hit the mark that, that we agreed to? So, th you know, that's just the approach that we take. And 
of the three uh, champion partners that we have on board right now, which is kind of our cool kids club, I guess you could say that's usually paired with Jersey placement and Mm -hmm. official designations or category exclusivity Um, of those three brands. uh, We expect all of them to re-up in in 2020. We already have a couple LOIs in place. And currently I have three additional companies that are coming on board in that champion partner status in 2020 that have decided to come on board as a a first sponsor, a non-endemic brand that has never interacted with the space just because we've been able to show consistent results with other companies and um, you know, we're able to back things in data and that makes them a little bit more comfortable in, in executing that investment. So it's just a different outlook. Uh, I think the industry just has to mature a little bit. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, there, there's one use case that, you know, won't mention any names, but there was one specific major, major company that invested with a team, um, upwards of seven figures and, uh, the team ended up folding, you know, I think, halfway into the partnership or something like that. And that brand ended up losing a lot of their investment dollars. So those Mm. are the types of things that I think has scarred the industry. um, And it's caused some brands to say, hold on a minute, let's wait until we fully know what we're getting into. Um, And, you know, but once again, I I think it's just all about the approach that you take and and ensuring that your client, your brands, your partners are uh, sustainably happy and that you're consistently showing results to them because they don't, they don't know what they don't know. And, and a lot of the times they're deferring expertise to myself or to the team or to our, you know, just to the organization and the pressure's on us to be able to drive the results for them. So if they don't re up, it's, it's ultimately my fault, my team's fault, the company's fault. Um, and you know, that's we just try to mitigate that risk as much as possible and try to set clear expectations on both sides. Mm. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know a very important thing that you mentioned there was about setting the expectations. And I also talked about this in a in a podcast not too long ago about something that I've learned over my journey is to be painfully obvious in asking about their expectations. And you obviously and you often feel like an idiot doing it, but just make sure to take the time to slowly explain and get them to slowly explain to you back what they are. Because exactly. it's something that's really important. And I mean it's not I mean, I don't want to be too much I don't never want to be too much of a self help podcast and I'm trying to just go off things that I've experienced myself or have seen in the industry, and it seems to be human nature. You know, people have issues with their relationship and they don't talk to each other about it. Friends are angry at each other. They don't talk to each other about it. And it seems to be similar with sponsorship. You know, learn what each person wants out of it before you get into it. Same thing with an esports team. And that's why my team, I feel like when I played semi professionally, we were so successful comparatively in a short period of time because we were very obvious when a person wanted to join our team during their first trial in counter-strike we were very clear with them saying look if you join this team we expect you to not be a troll and to basically be a massive nerd and spend all Mm -hmm. your days thinking about counter-strike and practicing and you know become one of the boys as part of the team and you know get along with each other and you know, that was very different to the climate in counter-strike at that time which was very bravado go and just click on heads and you know, kind of staunch each other on the internet. So I think right. that it's very important to take those learnings into the into that space and to ask people about what they want. And also uh, some of the wording that you use there that, that I kind of want to outline as well where esports are sitting at, especially with teams at the moment, is that you said, you know, the investment from the brand. And I've had this in the past where I was at Corsair and people were saying, hey, if you sponsor my team, I'll be bigger than the one that you already sponsor within 12 months and me trying to explain that, hey, I'm a sponsor, not an investor. But you definitely are right in saying that at the moment, 
for a lot of these brands, I feel that it is part in part sponsorship and part investment. The brand's trying to get on early with this team, help to uplift them, and um, part of that uplift will mean more exposure for the sponsor as well in the long run. Right. And, and you know, I, I think that uh, the word sponsor is is for a brand that comes in and buys something, gets it, and then leaves. Um, we're looking for partners that we can have for a long-term investment that are going to consistently, once again, see the results that, that we're able to execute. And uh, like you like you said, a, a lot of the times, neither side wants to ask the hard questions on, hey, are we doing well? Or, hey, what what does success look like? And you know, I, I feel like every single phone call I have with, with our partners, almost even on a weekly basis at this point, consistently asking, you know, how have the results been for you and what can we continue to do? And what are some, some surprise and delight things that we can just throw into the mix? Um, our, our content team constantly reaches out to our sponsors and says, Hey, we have this cool thing coming up. Can you get involved in it? Can you throw, um, you know, some support behind it or some products or whatever that may be. And a lot of the times, you know, we, we don't charge anything extra for that. Um, and we have the set deliverables for that specific brand, but ultimately we want to ingrain them in as much of the exposure and organic, uh, impressions and engagement as humanly possible. So, at the end of the day, the brands are investing because we are executing advertisements that doesn't look like advertisement, um, which is very, very attractive to them and also is attractive to our fan base because we're not going out there and posting um, a, a HyperX advertisement every 20 minutes on on Instagram or something like that. So uh, mm. we're, we're able to, to organically bake the sponsors into the day-to-day lives of our players and of the organization and um, while at the same time ensuring that we're delivering the results that we agreed to. So, you know, like you said, it's, it's just a different outlook that, um, that's taken on, on those specific buckets. And we, we've seen a lot of success around it. Mm. And let's, let's take a opportunity to talk a little bit about HyperX. It's good that you, you brought them up because I have a note here to talk about them. So a, a similarity between, um, HyperX, where they are at today, reminds me a lot of Steel Series in the past. So thinking back to when Counter Strike 1.6 and StarCraft 2 were the biggest esports on the market, and League mm-hmm. of Legends didn't really exist that much. Steel Series was a sponsor of basically every top organization in the world. If you think about the top eight to ten Counter Strike 1.6 teams, Steel Series sponsored at least six of them. I think at one time, Fnatic, SK Gaming. I believe they sponsored ESC Icy Box with the Golden Five from Poland. Um, they sponsored Tyloo over in China, EG in the US, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I feel like I see that now a lot with HyperX as well. Do you think that, you know, with your partnership with HyperX and, and how many teams and influencers around the world that they sponsor, they're really going for that that blanket strategy versus some others, say, maybe like Corsair or even Razor today, who seem to go for a little bit less uh, quantity? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, HyperX has been killing it and they are positioning themselves as a dominant leader in this space where, you know, no matter if you are a professional gamer, a casual gamer, I mean, even their campaign, we are all gamers where they're working with individuals like Post Malone and Juju Smith-Schuster over here at the Steelers. Um, it's, it's, it's a really, really creative marketing technique where 
their advertising and branding is visible everywhere. And it's, uh, it's almost hard to get HyperX out of your head at some point. So we're working with them on some really, really strategic and creative stuff, um, for 2020. And, um, that, you know, they've been a valued brand. And I think that they have done very, very, very well over the past year in positioning themselves as a, a dominant leader in that peripheral category in that space. Because, you know, I, I think that, that some of these other brands were, um, in that, in that higher echelon. And I think that more and more people are consistently going to HyperX and purchasing their products over, over alternatives just because it's all inclusive. Um, you don't have to be a competitive gamer. You don't have to be a casual player. You can just be uh, an individual that, that likes to play on your phone and you, you know, you buy the cloud mix and you plug it right in and it's Bluetooth, um, as well. So it's there. I think that they're taking the right approach and when we were exploring opportunities on the peripheral side, um, you know, we talked to everyone and, uh, HyperX was the one that really stood out to us. And we were able to do some really creative marketing around, um, with them and even, you know, expanding that into 2020 and with some, some really cool stuff. So uh, I, I love the brand. I love all the products. I'm using a HyperX headset at the moment. So, um, you know, we, nothing but good things to say about them. And I think that they're, they're taking the, the right approach in terms of advertising to this audience and this demographic. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. And I guess it, it leads us into the, to the next discussion about non-endemic sponsors and, <clears throat> you know, major brands. So my investors always push me. They personally, to put them at the spotlight, they hate the word non-endemic because, right. mm-hmm. they, you know, don't necessarily understand. And, and from Googling, it seems that no one really uses that word except for people from the esports market. When I tried to Google what the definition of it is, everything that comes up is about diseases. So I, I promise <laughs> those people who are, because we do have a contingent of people that listen to the podcast that are outside the industry looking for information in, and and a lot of them quite senior executives and and um, you know very experienced business people themselves, which is great to see. But to explain, a non-endemic brand or a sponsor is a brand that's not inherently involved in the esports market. Either they've never sponsored before, or they simply don't make products that are um, necessary or in, and once again an inherent part of the market. So if you're a razor that makes a gaming mouse, obviously you're an endemic because you can't play a computer game without a mouse unless maybe you're crazy. However, <laughs> if you simply just make cars or fridges or washing machines or light bulbs, you can play games without any of those at any one time. And the same thing is that maybe if you make a car, you're not going to make a gaming-only car brand. You're likely going to sell to tradespeople and to mothers um, and to fathers and also to gamers at the same time. So I'd love to get a bit of information from you as to how you see the non-endemic market of sponsorship um, coming into coming into the scene at the moment. Do you think that it's sustainable? Do you think that the companies are coming in at a pace that you expected, faster, slower? Give us a bit of a you know an elevator pitch, a rundown, a bit of your views. Yeah, so I you know I I try to personally avoid the word non-endemic. Um, if, you know, if we're talking um, with with other industry professionals, that's usually the easiest word to use. Um, but when talking to mm. brands, I, I a lot of the times like to use, you know, we're bringing you to market for the first time. And that is a lot more attractive from their perspective, especially in a, a specific category or industry. So Smile Direct Club, just as a key example, is, is one of our champion partners. And they sell um, teeth straightener, Invisalign technology, whitener kits, those types of things. And a lot of the times, you know, I, I've had people come to me and say, 
How are you working with a company like Smile Direct Club and showing results for them? And it's all just about messaging. It's all about the story that we're able to tell. So we, we position Smile Direct Club as our official confidence partner and they assist our players in, you know, when they're up on, on these huge stages, you know, potentially in front of 30,000 people in the crowd, maybe hundreds of thousands of people watching online. Um, the last thing that they need to worry about is their own self image. They need to be focusing on the game and they need to be focusing in, in, in tune into that specific moment. So, you know, we're taking some of our players through the treatment process with Smile Direct Club, um, and, you know, really allowing them to ingratiate themselves in the esports and gaming industry without being what I like to use, quote unquote, to sell out. Um, and, I think that's the attractive model with esports, and a lot of times, what I tell brands as well is, look, it 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 ultimately it doesn't make sense for you to just sponsor the Pittsburgh Knights forever. But we've shown consistent results for our brands, and I'm confident in the sense now that we've had X amount of conversations, and I fully understand that brand's KPIs and the ROI that they're looking to generate, and what a successful campaign looks like. You know, I can confidently come to the table and say, hey here is the first step that we think that you should execute within the space. And from there, once we show those results, let us assist you with finding the next step to take, whether that's advertising on Twitch, whether that's sponsoring another team, whether that's ingratiating yourselves with a tournament organizer, physical events or in stadium signage or whatever that may be. But, you know, ultimately we're able to bring you on board for that, that first step in the process, dip your toe in the water you know, we'll, we'll show the results together so that, that the brand can go to their CMO or, or, you know, senior executive that is ultimately always going to be hesitant on investing in the space and say, here's the immediate results that we saw, saw from this partnership. Here's the ROI that we saw and here's how we can continue to invest. So I, I think that this is a real opportunity for, um, non-endemic, you know, once again, using that word brands to get into the space. Um, but, a lot of the times, uh, once again, going back to that more personal approach and in, in ensuring that they fully understand what they're buying is key, especially on on that specific category. Because you jump into a call with with Corsair, Razor, HyperX, or any of these other brands, they know what they're getting. They know what results are going to work for them. They know, um, you know, jersey placement here is going to be worth X versus a creative content series that's going to be pushed out and viewed by X is going to be worth something different. A lot of the times for these brands that don't know a lot about the space or are entering the market for the first time, they don't know what works better over what. So once it, it, it's all about just transparency and outlining, um, you know, here is, is what we view this deliverable is going to achieve for you. Here's what this one is going to achieve. And ultimately all of these deliverables together will create a holistic approach to, to reach the goal that you're looking for. So I think this next calendar year, 2020 is going to be massive for these brands to come to market for the first time. And, and the majority of the companies that, that we're pitching for 2020. And the majority of the companies that have signed on for us as new sponsors are brands that have never done anything in esports. And we're excited to be mm. able to bring them to market through some really strategic campaigns. And another thing is we work with a lot of other teams too. If a brand comes to me and says, Hey, we are looking for, um, you know, uh, Twitch streamers that are, um, you know, between this concurrent viewer range and this concurrent viewer range. Um, and that doesn't, 
fall within what I have available in terms of our influencers or professional players or what have you, then a lot of the times I'll call up other teams and I'll say, Hey, um, you know, I have a brand that wants to do this and this, this, and this, and I'm not able to achieve with what I have available to me. Um, are you interested in working with me on a collaborative sponsorship that, you know, we can use some of your talents and, and maybe drive some additional revenue for, for this other team. So there's a lot of the times that, that we have those conversations. And, um, I think, I think a lot of groups, especially on the team side, when having those discussions are scared to, to provide alternative options. But um, once again, our goal is to educate the brand and sponsor on what this is and what they're buying and what the best approach is for the results that they're looking for and um, you know, trying to put together the most attractive and cost-efficient package as humanly possible. So I think we're going to see a ton of new brands come on in, in 2020. But I also think that we're going to see uh, a lot of brands that that maybe came on in, in 2019 or 2018 start to rethink their investment, not necessarily cutting back, but maybe focusing more on tournaments and, and physical events or less on tournaments and physical events and looking at team elements or, or doing direct sponsorships with the leagues like we've seen a lot with, with League of Legends even. You know, there, there's a, a multitude of different opportunities. And from the team side, I am one step of that. And so I have to give the whole picture before the brand should be comfortable in, in investing into us. Um, so, you know, once again, that's just the outlook that we take on it. But uh, I think mm. that 2020 is going to be a huge year for, for new sponsors coming on. And what, what sort of uh, brands or industries are not in the space right now you think that would be advantageous to take a look and get involved? So I, I, I think... Um, you know, a couple ones that, that we've looked at, uh, financial institutions, we've seen very, very few, especially here in the States, come on board. And, um, you know, we've, we've taken a hard look at that. If you would have asked me, you know, a couple of months ago, I would have said automotive, but we've, we've drastically mm-hmm. seen more and more brands come into that specific category. Healthcare, yeah. I think, is a big one as well. If, if you look at, yeah the upper echelon in terms of um, traditional sports team sponsors. It's usually some, you know, financial institution or banking. It's usually healthcare, hospitals, um, insurance providers, those types of things. Um, so we're working with a couple select groups on, you know, especially even on the sports medicine side in the nutritional categories and the fitness approach. And, um, you know, I think that's a huge section that a lot of brands haven't uh, or a lot of teams haven't fully focused on and maybe even some brands um, haven't necessarily realized that there's an opportunity uh, in an ideal world you know the the sweet spot that I look for is subscription-based services which mm. can be advertised nationally or globally is in a physical store retail location so we can easily you know all they're typically looking for is digital um, or social and that pairs really really well with um with what we're able to achieve in terms of our deliverables and assets so we have a couple new subscription-based companies coming on in in 2020 um i have a chewing gum brand coming on board in in 2020 as well um and a couple other ones with some new categories that we haven't really seen in the space yet so it's really it's exciting to be a part of um and but i i think that we're going to start to see some more of these niche categories that um you know especially from the traditional sports side if if you just look if you go to any nfl game or, or you know even even any traditional sports game um you'll see a multitude of different sponsors that 
may not necessarily make sense on why it's they're partnering with that specific team or brand, but ultimately what they're looking for is just the the general exposure to that audience group. So there's a bunch of different mm-hmm. ways that we can market. And it, once again, it's all contingent on what the brand is looking for, what their the results um, are that they're trying to achieve, and me trying to come to the table with the most attractive uh, proposal for them to to move forward with. So it's it's all a conversation. Um, it's it's all just a give and take, and and yeah, and I and I love your mention of um, subscription based thing mm-hmm. um, and digital. Because I think it's it's something that people often forget is that you know it's a it's a it's a digital market. You're trading on Twitter followers and engagements and Twitch streams and such. So if, if it's an easy one click purchase through, or signing someone up to a subscription, you know it's a fantastic way to do things. And you know it just reminded me of um, talking in a startups community last night about um, Jeffrey Star and um Shane Dawson recently released their makeup palettes to uh, yeah. YouTube love it and love it you know, I mean that great was insane case study. yeah yeah insane it, right and and for those people who don't know so so Jeffrey Star is a very androgynous looking um absolute makeup business mogul owns tens of millions of dollars of property multiple businesses um and has a very large affinity for Gucci and other expensive things of the like like you know, $10,000 Supreme briefcases and such, but <laughs> right. able to afford that through not only a massive YouTube empire, but also through the great marketing and release of own products, especially through makeup. So what he did was he partnered with Shane Dawson, a YouTuber who's been around since the dawn of YouTube time and has massive gained massive popularity over that period, gotten him into the makeup space, and the end-up result is they sold out in 24 hours and grossed over $50 million worth of sales a lot of those directly through Jeffree Star's own website as well, not through a third-party retail partner. So, you know, backing those off video, multiple one-hour or at least 45-minute videos, documenting the whole process, creating some very engaging content, some very heart-wrenching content, a lot of the periods of time as well, emotional and, you know, telling a good story. So all of those kind of things can be taken across the esports space. And what I really want to see esports people do, more and more so, is learn from these makeup industry people because... I think that the makeup industry people do much better content and promote things much better than than esports ever has in the past. They're earning a lot more money with a lot less subscribers um, from personal experience from from these creators, and they're also able to capitalize on their audience and get them interactive, engaged, clicking through, not even just buying, but clicking through at a much better rate than most of the other industries that I've seen as well. And even through doing things like physical meetups in makeup stores quite often, and you know doing. Um, play-by-plays and showing people how to hands-on use products and things like that too. And really, you know, wrapping it back up to like what you said, keeping things digital, I think, is, mm-hmm. is very interesting. And a, a chewing gum brand, that's that's going to be really interesting. I, I can't wait to see. And another thing that you mentioned as well is healthcare. And we, I talked about that a bit with Sam um, from Think Tank Social in a recent podcast and a LinkedIn live stream as well, exactly about that, about getting um, some healthcare brands into the market um, some health insurance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a, a fantastic one to start exposing, you know, people to a younger market. It's it's a big, big world out there, and there's a lot of opportunities and a a, a lot of categories that that we're able to hit on. Um, and you know, the even even like you mentioned that 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 whole look behind the curtain with the makeup industry. I I took a ton of notes just from from those videos that went out and by the end of it um you know I don't use makeup myself but I wanted to buy the kits because I was there with the experience I I understood the 
the amount of time and effort that went behind something like that and, you know, promoting yeah. those two creators just as an example. Um, so I, I think that there's, there's a huge affinity with the approach that some of these other verticals take, um, with how they market, sell their products in in-store activations and all those different things. Um, and I, I, where I think, you know, esports has a lot to learn from, from that, but. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in, in 2020 and beyond to continue to evolve the, the suite of services and products that, that teams, leagues, tournament organizers, events are ultimately selling to these brands and sponsors. And hopefully they're doing it in a way that they, they see some sort of return or at least have a clear expectation of, of what they're getting out of it. Mm, yeah, exactly. I think there's so much we can learn from the makeup industry and, you know, so many brands are getting into the space. I've, I've mentioned quite a few times on the podcast before. I like to see white goods, which is like fridges, TV, you know, fridges, washing mm-hmm. machines, microwaves, right. etc., get into the space. Partly just due to a personal anecdote of you know moving out of home at nineteen and having no idea about what any of those to buy were right. because I hadn't watched <laughs> TV at that stage for multiple years of my life. Um, and yeah, just some of these brands that. And, and I think, look, changing tangent a little bit as well. My my discussion often with these mainstream brands is saying to them that look. You may think that you're advertising in sports and maybe even on YouTube and, and such at the moment, but to these gamers, you're not even an option right now. You're not even mm-hmm. on the table as a possible consideration. So you need to start exposing yourself at least in some way to this market for you to be somewhere in the realm of possibility for these people when they're thinking about you. Because the closest that I ever knew to what fridge or washing machine to buy was Samsung, because I knew Samsung because they Mm -hmm. were the lead sponsor of the World Cyber Games for many years that I used to adamantly watch for the Counter-Strike 1.6 matches. So at least there was some brand recognition. It was definitely not, you know, it was Samsung phones that was the primary sponsor and it kind of went across to PC with the the screens and a little bit with the SSDs. But, you know... Thankfully, they're white you, goods uh, manufacturers. Well, you, got you knew that there was alternatives, you know, and, and you, you knew the brand name and that took you to the next step, which is going to their website. And, you know, I know that they do a lot of electronic goods. Let's see what else they have. Oh, they have the fridges and they have the stoves and the, the, the washing machines and, and all these different things that, that I need as a, a normal person to live my life. Um, and I, I think, like you said, there's, there's a lot of brands that are, you know, doing pre-roll, mid and post on YouTube and are just doing the normal advertising campaign that they do on TV. And, you know, they're, they're not retaining, uh, the, um, the recognition from these, you know, the, the, the gamers and, um, just this demographic overall within esports and gaming. Like you said, a lot of these brands are advertising, but don't realize that that they're not even um, getting the retention from, from this demographic that they, that they think they're getting. So it's, it's, Mm. it's about creating that personal approach. It's about integrating the brand in a more unique way that potentially hasn't been done before. And, you know, there's, there's no shame in, in doing what someone else did Um, just perfect on it and do it a little bit better and learn from, from the mistakes that have been made in the industry and um, try to, to be a sponge and just absorb as much as you possibly can to, be best equipped to, to go to brands and say, Hey, you know, I, I, I think that you guys are doing well, but here's how we can amplify that. Um, and that's ultimately what's going to be the turning point and the decision for, for a lot of these different companies that maybe haven't fully invested in, into the space yet. So I think it's an interesting outlook to take. Mm, mm. And I guess uh, a bit of more insight into you as to regards to these 
wholly rounded esports entry st- strategies. Um, you know, I liked the fact that you mentioned that sometimes sponsoring a team at all or only a team is not the best entry into the market. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, many brands that are coming to you and, you know, by proxy investing in you and being pushed to, across to influencers and, and such? Are they kind of eating up your suggestions or are they just steaming ahead with what they think's best? Well, a, a lot of the times what we say is, um, you know, let us prove the results for you um, in the space. So it, it, at the end of the day, it, it's not going to make sense for them to just invest into the Pittsburgh Knights and, and sponsor us as, as a team. Um, but I think that we're a really attractive first step to take. And there's been times where, um, you know, we've brought brands to some of our league partners and game developers that we work with and publishers and uh, event organizers that, um, you know, our teams um, compete and play at. And, uh, you know, they've been able to, to strike partnerships on their side of the table, too. So and additionally, when we bring new brands to market, um, a lot of the times they s- immediately get a surge of, of proposals and requests for sponsorship and all, all those different things. And, um, we are, we act sometimes as the sounding board for that brand to say, we think this is a good investment. We think this is a bad investment. Um, and, and kind of help them categorize and, uh, make their way through the weeds of, of the inevitable, hundred other teams that are reaching out to them as soon as that press release goes out. So, uh, it's, it's all about being the, the resource for the brand. Um, yeah, my phone is always on. I am constantly replying to emails. If one of our sponsors calls me at 10 o'clock at night and cause they're watching Twitch with their kids and they had a quick question, then yeah, shoot me a call. Let's, you know, let me answer it for you. Or if I don't have the answer, let me find out what, what that answer is. And, um, you know, so I, I, I think it's just a, a different approach that, that we're taking once again, in the sense that, you know, we have to be the always on and always available resource for the brands that are investing into the space for the first time for them to be able to ask questions and have a space, safe space to do so. Um, whether, you know, there's no dumb questions in, in the industry. So, uh, you know, a, a, anything that, that a brand needs or, or, you know, that they're asking, we like to be the sounding board for that. And mm. ultimately that makes the brands very, very comfortable because we're, we're, you know, a lot of the times 100% transparent with them on how we view a, a certain outlook. Um, and that may prompt them to continue to invest into other areas and we may provide recommendations. And there has been times in the past where we've passed brands off to other teams uh, other leagues and in, in uh, game developers um, to to further invest into the space. So it's been it's been um, you know a, a good opportunity and position for us to be in. And um, growth of the industry is growth for all of us, uh, and, and that's kind of how how we like to view it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And and so many switched on people I talk to in the esports market will give you know very similar answers to you, and, and they're heavily invested in helping new brands come into the market. And I'm not sure you're going to get that in almost any other industry than you do in mm-hmm. esports. So, you know, it's part of the great reason why we're involved. And I would say from personal experience, you certainly don't even get this in gaming influencers, which are very close to the esports market. Yeah, it's I I think it's night and day um, with, with a lot of these different groups. And, um, you know, that's why, especially on the influencer side, if we can be the 
the broker of the deal. There's a lot of times that, that we'll, you know, a, a brand will contact us and say, Hey, we want to do this, this marketing campaign. But a lot of game developers, believe it or not, indie game developers come to us and, and say, Hey, you know, we have a new game coming out. We want to execute this X budget and we want to, to get a bunch of YouTubers and Twitch streamers to play our game over the course of the launch weekend. And, you know, a, a, a lot of times we don't even make substantial profit off that just because most of it is passed through to, um, to the influencer. But with that, we're ensuring that there's clear expectations on both sides. And we have a network of influencers that we know that we've worked with in the past that can perform at a very high level. And we're comfortable with recommending them to XYZ brand or game developer or sponsor. Um, and, you know, we kind of take the, uh, the risk on that. And, um, cause we know that we have a, a, a good group of individuals that we can bring to the table. But at the same time, you know, we, we tried to, um, get them to, to further invest with us into other areas. So it's, it's just a constant conversation, um, and mm. staying in the loop with, with what everyone is looking to get, staying up to speed on, on the market and, um, you know, where the opportunities are for some sort of partnership, uh, even if it's outside of Knights deliverables or if, if we can't achieve on something, I know 10 people that, that could. So, um, at the end of the day, you know, the goal is to, we're in the yes business. So, um, I, I try not to say no, uh, un- unless it doesn't make sense for the sponsor or it's not in their own best interest. So those are, those are typically the only times that, that we say no to things or, or, you know, we provide alternative options for, for that specific thing. Mm. So we've talked about a lot so far in this podcast. Can you let the people listening know what's coming up next for you? What are you focusing on at the moment? So we're we're in full swing with 2020. Um, we are going to be announcing a lot of new brands, a lot of new sponsors coming on, new team expansions. Uh, we just got into Rocket League for this upcoming or for for this past season um, that took place, and we'll be continuing with that in 2020. Um, we're going to continue to create our uh, online community based through online tournaments and events and, and seeding those to local event centers, both here in Pittsburgh and, and potentially even nationally across, uh, across the U S. So there's a lot of things coming up on the night side. Um, a lot of new merchandise coming out, a lot of new team expansions. And, um, you know, if, if we're, if, if you think we're keeping quiet, it's usually for a reason because we have something big coming up soon. And also we'll be engaging Wiz and the Steelers and, and all our, our other influencers, investors and partners, into all kinds of cool content. So I have to fly out to LA soon and, and meet with Wiz's team Fantastic. out there and, and talk about 2020 plans. So it's exciting. Man, on a personal note, I'm always a fan of more rappers getting into esports. People like Wiz, what you're seeing happening with FaZe and 100 Thieves with Drake and et cetera. It's, it's fantastic to see. I can't it, wait it, to see more. It, yeah, it's a ton of crossover. So lots, lots mm. coming in 2020 and beyond. Mm. And uh, if someone wants to follow you online or connect with you, where can they do so? So connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's that's the go-to. Uh, if you're following me, best off just to follow the Knights, Knights GG on Twitter, just Knights on Instagram. Um, that's the best way to kind of stay up to speed on on things that we have going on. But definitely feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm always available to to you know, send a message back or take an email or take a phone call. So however I can be a resource to anyone out there that has some questions, uh, happy to do so. Fantastic, mate. Well, thanks so much for the discussion today. It's It's been fantastic to um, 
kind of bounce some ideas off that I've been thinking a lot. And, you know, it's, it's something I've been trying to do a lot in my content is be on open and honest when I haven't got a fully formed opinion on something and then try to get people in, in to the podcast to create the content with who are actually on ground zero, you know, competing in these things. And I'm sure we're going to cut out a couple of snippets to release online where we talked about the tier one v tier two. It might ruffle a couple of feathers with those who I think are in the tier one market. But mm-hmm. as as we mentioned, I think there are some major advantages and disadvantages to, to playing in both spaces. So I'm really happy that you're able to discuss that with me. Yeah, greatly appreciate um, having me on the show, Chris. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk through some of these cool buckets of, of behind the scenes items that are happening in the space. So, um, yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you again. No problem, mate. And enjoy the business travel coming up. Like, like we said, pre-recording, um, often it's the people who don't travel for business think that the allure of it is fantastic, but in reality, <laughs> it, it can be very, can be very hard because I do miss my, Two screens, mechanical keyboard, and comfy, um, PLE battleable gaming chair. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm and traveling it, and crunched over in a Starbucks, noisy right. and trying to blast music to drown out kids running around and crying near me. It's all about the experience, though. So making the best <laughs> of it, but <laughs> it's you know one step at a way every time. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's what exactly. I say. That's what I'm exactly. Heard. Fantastic. All right, mate. So thanks so much for joining us today, and and thank you to the listeners for listening in. This has been. Big Esports Podcast number 60. Once again, for any of the show notes, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 60. That's the numbers 60 for the show notes, links, and to anything we talked about today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 